All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, including uh, those of you back there who feel a mile away. I see you guys. Well, uh, it's been actually a long while since I've been uh, with you all. Um, half a year, uh, to be exact. Uh, and a lot has changed for myself and my family, as I'll share in a bit. Um, but uh, it's my first time in this building as well, so really uh, glad to be here uh, Uh, seeing you guys, uh, worshiping with you guys today. Well, before we get into this passage, this word, let's all bow together and let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon this time. Let's pray. God, God, our Father, we turn now to your word. And we want this to be more than a time of listening, but we want this time to be a time of convicting and changing. And for that, God, you can't leave me up here to my own abilities and resources. It needs to be the Holy Spirit who is the main actor in this time having his way in us. So I ask for his power to speak, to use this passage and give a personal, pointed word to each and every person here, not just informing our minds, but getting to the core of our beings, that the course, the trajectory of our lives may change. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, since I was last here, my wife Rachel and I have welcomed the arrival of our first child, our precious uh, boy Philip, uh, who's in the back somewhere, hopefully sleeping for mommy. Um, And now, while I wouldn't say it's uh, more so than any other new parents, our transition into Parenthood has been pretty challenging, a lot of uh, new changes for us, and among the many things that I've been learning uh, throughout this process is actually the power of expectations, okay? um, you know, meaning how we have been expecting Philip's days and nights to go have played a big part in our attitude and our emotional well-being through it all. You know, Philip may have a good day uh, eating and sleeping pretty regularly every two, three hours without fuss, but how dangerous it's been for us to make that the normal expectation that this is how it's going to go today, tonight, right? When we expect things to go a certain way, and of course many times they don't, is when Rachel and I are at our most frustrated, when we're irritable, kind of taking it out on each other, feeling especially helpless. But it's when we expect the worst, when we expect it to be hard. Like the last few weeks for Philip has been uh, him at his peak fussiness, where uh, many of these nights, past few weeks, he's been waking up about every hour, um, And after we feed him, he's not able to fall asleep and stay asleep unless we hold him. So a bunch of these nights, I've been having him just sleep on my chest, you know, and that's the only way to 
kind of keep them calm, right? But when it's been our expectation that that's how the night's going to go is actually when the situation has been most tolerable for us, when Rachel and I bring better attitudes towards it, even strangely laughing, right, when we're feeling so helpless and at our wit's end. You see, the difference lies not in the circumstances themselves and how things go, but again, in the expectations that we bring into it. Now, I want you to think about it. What kind of expectations you have for your life? How you manage your expectations has a dramatic effect on how you experience life, how you feel about life, more than you realize. And the Psalms which you've been going through to begin this year, help you set right biblical expectations for your life if you are a Christian. That's one of the purposes of the Psalms. Psalm 63, our passage this morning, is typical of what we read throughout the Psalms, where the psalmist finds himself in trouble, in stress. And he's crying out to God about his situation. Now, these psalms that arise out of a place of distress and pain, where the psalmist cries out to God for his help and comfort, these are what we call lament psalms. This is what theologians refer to as lament psalms. Now, how many of the 150 psalms in the Psalter do you think are what we can categorize lament psalms. What percentage? 70% of the 150 psalms we can categorize as lament psalms. You know what one thing that that tells us? It's that facing and enduring troubles, situations that overwhelm us, is the normal experience for the Christian, not the exception. I think some of us might have it in our minds where, you know, if I have a right relationship with God, if I'm walking with God, yeah, life will not be all, you know, um, sunny and all that, but it should be more pain-free and comfortable and free of stress than it is for me. Maybe you have that feeling and thought there. That's why you're often frustrated and upset with the way life goes. But what the Psalms teach us, especially in Psalm 63, is that we are to expect a regular feeling of difficulty, not ease. A regular feeling of adversity, not tranquility. A feeling weakness, not strength. That was the majority of the Psalms that King David wrote, where he was in this situation, this condition, where he laments, he cries out to God in his troubles, and he, exp- he, he expresses honestly his fears, his hurts, his pains, his anger, his helplessness. Now, this reality, as you hear this, by itself can make you feel discouraged, disheartened, more helpless, 
But here's the good news in this all. It's when you're in the place of weakness, not strength. It's when you're in the wilderness that you find and meet God. That you see and experience God for all that he is for you. And when you see and experience him, you can genuinely worship in the wilderness, not despite it. In this psalm, Psalm 63, King David, he's in the wilderness of Judah, far away from his palace, his reign in Jerusalem. And he's on the run as a fugitive away from his enemies. Now, many of us are familiar with this psalm. Perhaps you've been blessed by this psalm in the past. But hopefully I could present it this morning in a way that gives fresh eyes, fresh perspective to it. And this psalm is a gift to the church because it models for us this progression that will enable us to worship God in the wilderness. And this progression that we're going to see is desperation leading to desire, desire leading to delight, and delight leading to discipline. So that's my outline. That's our roadmap this morning. Desperation leading to delight, delight leading to desire, uh, sorry, the desire, desire leading to delight, and delight leading it to be a discipline for us. First, desperation to desire. Now, King David here, again, is a fugitive fleeing, and even though we're not explicitly told from whom, most likely it's Absalom, his own son, if you know the story from First and Second Samuel, who conspired against him. Now, what a place of devastation this must have been for David. Put yourself in his shoes. Think about if your own child, whom you love, raises up a rebellion against you, seeking to usurp your throne and is out to destroy your life. How emotionally, relationally, spiritually, physically, spent and shattered he must have been in that dry and weary desert, all while trust trying to survive, trying to stay alive. Now, what does he do in the midst of this utter desperation? What's well, clear from the very beginning, he seeks with utmost desire for God. Look with me, verse 1. You see a couple things. First, he yearns for God with his whole being. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts. My flesh faints for you. This is not a half-hearted longing. This is an intense, more than anything else, longing. I need you more than anything else, as we just sung. Oh, God, I want you even more than his body is crying out for water in desert. He cries out for his God. Also, what we see here in his desire is that this is a longing for God himself, period. 
to satisfy his soul like water satiates us. If you read through the psalm, notice this is not David seeking after God for what he can do for him, not seeking for his help and his protection in the midst of his desperate circumstances. Now, it's not wrong to do that. David in other psalms is doing that. But in this psalm, what we see is that he's already trusting. He's confident that God is going to protect him and provide for him. What David is seeking after is not what God can do for him, but he's seeking after God himself. God, period, is the object of his desire, his pursuit. Now, what this clearly obviously shows us is that if you are one of God's people, one thing that you are fundamentally marked by is an appetite for him, is you have an appetite. We see this language of hunger and thirst for God all throughout Scripture. Here's just two of them, right? In Psalm 42, which many of us are familiar with, verses 1 to 2, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. About Isaiah 55, verse 2 verses, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. God's people are marked by this kind of appetite. Is your life currently marked by this hunger thirst for God himself? Now, what is it that is ought to stir up in us this raging, right, incomparable, insatiable hunger, thirst for God? It's when you're in situation and places of desperation, when you're in the desert, when you're in the wilderness, like I said at the top, which is a constancy for us. Why does God, think about this, why does God place you and keep you in wilderness situations? Now, wilderness situations takes all kinds of different forms and shapes. For instance, perhaps you're in a season right now where you're stripped of comforts you hold dear, strips of people, things that you naturally turn to. Perhaps you're in a season where you're feeling isolated and lonely like David was here. Perhaps you're in a situation where you know full well deep inside of you, you're not in control. You're utterly helpless. Or perhaps you're in this situation where you just feel like you're stuck in a rut feel like you're just kind of meandering along in life. Perhaps you feel like your life, like the Israelites in the, wil- Israelites in the wilderness, you're just circling around in the desert. Your life is in a perpetual holding pattern, not really going anywhere. 
When you feel like it's headed somewhere, it just comes right back to begin. That's what your life has been like for a while. Is that what you've been feeling? Why does God put you and keep you in wilderness situations where you're tested and tried? It's so that those circumstances would drive you, would press you, would increase that thirst and hunger for him. That's what the point of the desert of desperation is. Now let me ask you, when you're in those wilderness situations, what is it that you turn to for water? What fountain do you drink from? Perhaps for some of us, we just kind of just try to keep ourselves busy frenetically, socially. For others of us, many of us, we just turn to mind-numbing, soul-numbing, these superficially medicating pleasures in our lives. Not that it's wrong to enjoy things. We just naturally turn into our phones. We turn to social media, Netflix, whatever. That's the water that you drink from by default when you're in the wilderness. Well, God has placed you there for a reason. What about him? It's so obvious, but what about him? He is waiting for you to earnestly seek him wholeheartedly. And he's even willing to strip things from your life to drive you to himself. Now let me add one more thing on this point of desperation ought to lead to this desire. And it's that when you understand how you're living your life, you know what the scriptures teach? The scriptures teach that you are fundamentally You're living your life, what you desire. You are fundamentally what you crave. You are what you love. What you desire is the main thing that shapes, right? That leads, that directs your life. That sets your trajectory. Now, many of us have this mindset, many Christians have this mindset that you are fundamentally what you know. But why is it then that there's this huge gap between what you know in your mind and what you actually do, how you live your life? It's because you're not fundamentally what you know. Think about how many sermons you've listened to in your life, how many Bible studies you've sat in, how many Christian books you've read. And that doesn't all naturally, automatically living, uh, lead you to live rightly. You know, when I started out in ministry as a pastor, I used to have this ministry philosophy and mindset. If, if I can just get people to understand the word, think rightly, then that will be good enough. You know, so when I was in seminary, I was doing college ministry back at the time, so I would meet with students and the most often topic that I talk about with students is relationships and dating. And more often than not, the situation was one where 
the person that they were interested in or the person that they were dating was probably not the right time or it was unhealthy. And I would share that with them. And you know what? Oftentimes, they would even acknowledge it. Say, you know, I see what you're saying. And I even agree with it. But did that change what they went and did? No. I would say 99% of the time made no difference, even though they themselves might have known it was unhealthy for them. Why? Because the heart wants what it wants. You're going to act on your heart. See, you're not fundamentally what you know. You are what you desire, what you crave, what you love. That's why you see how supremely important this psalm is and what it's directing us to, that in the circumstances of your life, make your desire God himself. Because literally the whole of your life is at stake by what it is that you're craving. I mean, think, I want you to pause for a moment. What is the current course? What is the current condition? What is the current trajectory of your life right now? Well, that can be explained by what your fundamental craving, what your fundamental pursuit is. I think for a lot of us in this room who are just honestly tired, unmotivated, what you're craving is really nothing. You're craving just this pain-free, comfortable existence. And your life is bearing the fruit of that craving. God wants so much more for you as you earnestly desire him. Now let's move next. That desire that God is seeking to stir up in you through the circumstances of your life leads, if you are earnest in your pursuit, to an earnest delight. Incomparable pleasure in God himself. Now what we see in this psalm actually is David not presently delighting in God. He actually, in this current situation, feels distant from God. Hence he longs for him. But his longing is driven by what he's tasted and experienced of God in the past. That he has found supreme delight in God. So look quickly with me through this psalm here. In verse 2, it says he remembers beholding the power and glory of God in the sanctuary, which is the place of corporate worship in Jerusalem, which he was currently cut off from as he was in the wilderness in Judah. Right? Verse 3, he has experienced, he has tasted the steadfast love of God in such a powerful way that he can earnestly say that God's love is better than life itself. And in verse 6, when David is alone in his bed at night, you know, when we're often at our most vulnerable in our fears, in our hurts, in our regrets from the day, when you're in bed trying to fall asleep, what is David doing then? 
He's meditating. He's enjoying a God who satisfies his soul as with fat and rich food. So what we see here is a delight that comes in your pursuit. Now let me draw a few lessons here under this heading. What can we see here about what this delight in God looks like? How you know you're genuinely delighting in God? Well, first, delight in God is experiential. And that's consistent with this imagery of thirst and hunger. God is one whose love, glory, power, being satisfies you, satiates you as like the best of meals. Again, this is eating and drinking language. God is one not just meant to be known, understood in the abstract. He's meant to be tasted, enjoyed. Just like the meal that you're going to have after service that some of you are already thinking about. right? Some of you are hangry right now, saying, get to your final points. Right? Just like a good steak, sushi, whatever, satiates your mouth, your stomach. Delighting in God is an experiential thing. Have you tasted God in that way? That he's not just something in the abstract. That you can say you've been satisfied by him. That's the kind of delight that we're after. Now, how do we know that we get to this place of delighting God? Well, it's proven by not needing anything else. When you find God and drink deeply from his fountain, that you taste him as fat and rich food, how you know you've done so is that other things, other cravings fade in comparison. It's no more God and blank. God and this. It's just God, period. You can get to a place, as David says in verse 3 again, your steadfast love is better than life. Now, some of us have heard this verse since you were young, very familiar with it. It's this beautiful spiritual-sounding phrase it's a verse that's put on Christian t-shirts at retreats. But what does this verse mean when it comes down to it? This high, lofty-sounding phrase. What, what, what does it look like to say, your steadfast love, O oh God, is better than life? Think about why do you go to God? What is it that makes you call upon God? More often than not, it's that, again, you're going to God for something from him. You're going to God to make your life, your circumstances better. But how you know you get to a place where you're truly delighting in God is that you're able to say, God, your steadfast love is better than even if you don't make the circumstances of my life better. I don't even need my life to be better because your steadfast love is better 
and it satisfies me. Have you ever been there with God? That's what that verse means. And then, last thing that we see about delighting in God is that it expresses itself, again, where you can worship in the wilderness, not despite it. You know, that's the one thing that really strikes me when I go through this psalm. It's that what David is gripped by in this de desperate situation where he's just trying to survive is that he is not gripped by his fear. He's gripped by who his God is. Although the outward circumstances of his life are a dry and parched and weary land, Inwardly, he's a well-watered soul, an overflowing fountain, because he has his God. And throughout, look at the language that he uses. Verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He's saying these things while in the wilderness, while Absalom is after his life, not being taken out of the wilderness. Have you been able to ever, in a desperate place, in trouble, that you can genuinely experience rest, delight in God, worship him? That's what we're after here. That's the kind of delight, joy, pleasure that can be had. Now, let me share here uh, just how I've experienced God, the delight that I've enjoyed in God. Um, perhaps the most powerful season of experiencing and delighting God in my life. And it didn't happen while I was a pastor in ministry. It happened many years ago when I was in college as a sophomore, right? How many of you are sophomores? A few of you, right? So when I was your age, right? The reason why I share this is this is not just true of these spiritual giants like King David. This is true. This can be true for any of us. This was true for me when I was an immature college student. Now, this was a soft, uh, summer after my sophomore year, and I was really... Um, afraid of this summer because um, I was trying to look for a job in Philadelphia uh, because this is where um, my church was at. It's where all my uh, close friends uh, who um, uh, walk, me through, walk with me with God. And so um, I wanted to be here to continue growing in the Lord. First two years of college, God flipped my life upside down. And I just wanted to continue that, continue to serve God and so I was trying to find a job I couldn't. And the only job that I could get was in Chicago, back home, where I grew up. But what that meant was it was going to be a very, very lonely summer for me. Because my parents were still back in Chicago, but all my closest friends had moved away from the area. I had no home church really to go to. So I would have been stripped of really everything I held near and dear. And so I'll tell you what my days that summer after my sophomore year were like. I would take the train. It was an hour ride to downtown Chicago for work alone. 
I worked at this financial services company where it was all 40, 50, 60-year-olds. I was the only young kid interning there. So they gave me this like closet office where I worked all day alone. During my lunch hour, I walked around the city, grabbed food somewhere, stepped, sat on some steps, ate alone. Took the train home. The one hour of social interaction I had, you say, was with my parents over dinner. And that's not always the, the funnest thing, right? I mean, it's nice, but you know, it's your parents, you know. And then after that, day after day, I had no plans. I had no one to see. All my closest friends were gone. Alone, night after night after night. Can you imagine? That's what my, pretty much my entire summer was like. Now, it would have been very easy for me to sink into feeling so isolated, even depressed by those circumstances. But what that season caused me to do is seek after the one and only thing that I could, and that's God himself. Now, what made it easier was this was pre-Wi-Fi days. This was pre-smartphone. This was Ethernet that wasn't always reliable, right? And I, that summer, because that's all I had, sought hard after God. On the train ride to work, I read my Bible. That summer, I read the entire New Testament. I prayed. I sought after God while I was listening to my discmen and worship songs on my CDs, right? During my lunch hour, as I was walking around the city, I would pray, read my Bible some more. After dinner, you know what I would do? The only place that I could go, I went to my local public library, right? So that I could rent out books for free, Christian books, where I could learn more about God and seek after him. And that's what I did that summer. And you know what? God overwhelmed me with his presence, with his love. You know, I read about this man, this theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who accounted one time, number of times, where he experienced, he was so overwhelmed by the love of God in such a tangible, palpable way that it was like this physical force that he felt on him, that it got to a point where he had to say, God, no more, I can't handle it. Your love is too much. And when I read that, I was like, God, that's how, I want, how much I want to experience you. I want to taste you in that way. And I can testify that there were a few nights that summer as I was alone in my bed at night that God came over me with his love like a waterfall. So much so that it was like I tangibly, physically felt this. I'm not talking about some mystical, charismatic thing here. I'm talking about a biblical Psalm 63 thing. And it was so much so where I even had to say, God, no more. This is too much. Your love overwhelms me. Now, this is an experience with God that I have not experienced even to this day as a pastor. But what that season has done for me is that it's become a fixed north point on my spiritual compass for me to go after again and again and again. 
if you earnestly, wholeheartedly desire, seek after God, you can find him in these overwhelming ways. You can delight in him. You don't have to be a King David. God will meet you. So what does it look like for you to earnestly, wholeheartedly desire him? Not in the ways that we might do where, you know, I'll read my Bible, but I'll watch TV while I'm doing it. You know, I'll pray, but I'll do it kind of while I'm half asleep, you know, while I'm distracted by other things, you know. What does it look like? Picture it. What would it look like for you to go after God where your soul, your flesh faints for him? Visualize that. If you do that, you can meet God and find his love that's better than mine. And that leads me to this last point here, that this desire turned to delight. Then, if you genuinely experience it, becomes a discipline, a habitual thing. Just like with anything else, there's something that you get hooked on. It's more often than not, just a one-time indulgence, a one-time enjoyment. It's becomes something that you go to again and again and again, even as an addiction. That's what we see here in this psalm, again, where David has experienced, delighted in God in the past. And that's become the north point on his spiritual compass, where in this current circumstance, he goes after God for that again and again. Desiring and delighting God is not a one-time thing. It's a reoccurring, ongoing Discipline, especially as we face trial after trial, trouble after trouble in the wilderness time and time again. Now with this, let me add one more thing to what I said before, in that you are fundamentally what you desire. Another thing that profoundly shapes our lives day to day is that you are largely your habits. Now, there have been many studies in recent years on the psychology of habit. I recently read this book called The Power of Habit by this New York Times uh, journalist. And studies show that almost half, about 40 to 45% of our lives, we live on autopilot. It's just our daily habits. Think about what you do first thing in the morning when you wake up, what you do right before you go to bed. It's probably the same thing day after day, just mindlessly, what you're naturally inclined to do without really any thought. Now, I'm guessing for the most of us, it's probably grabbing our phone. Let me check what posts I missed while I was sleeping. What was happening, right? You are the sum, really, of your habits. Now, habits, in a way, are good for us, right? Because that's how God has wired us, right? It'd be a very, very difficult, arduous thing if, for instance, with something like driving, we've had to relearn it over and over again every time we get in our car. 
go. That's become a habit for us where it's just natural autopilot where we don't have to think much about it. But then think about all the daily habits of your life. Do those habits lead you to experience the transcendent, the supremely delightful, or does it lead you to the trivial that numbs your mind and soul? I think for a lot of us, the daily habits of our lives perpetually lead us to the trivial that shrivels up our soul rather than that which enlarges our soul in the presence of God. So what this psalm is teaching us, what this psalm is calling us to is to rehabituate our lives, to rehabituate our desires to be Godward, not towards the things of the world. So what would it look like for you to rehabituate your life, to bring up new habits, right? We're still early enough in this new year that maybe some of you are still thinking about, what do I want to see happen in my life this year? What am I after this year? And this is not talking about new resolutions. This is something different. This is new habits you want to form in your life that profoundly shapes you. Now, yes, habits are hard to change, hard to shake, hard to break, but you take all the studies that are out there on the psychology of habit, and they will tell you, yes, it takes work, yes, it takes effort, it takes intention, it takes discipline, but you can change your habits. They're not your fate. They may take time, it may be a gradual process, but you can rehabituate your life. For instance... For me, one of the areas where I've experienced over time gradual but profound change is with my eating. When I was a single, I was your junk food guy, right? Where I would crave the worst of foods. Everything needs to be fried to some degree, right? Fried chicken. When I like that grilled chicken, I'm like, this is plain and nasty, man. Where's the taste in this? Fried chicken, right? Of course, especially as I got older and older, it would leave me feeling gross and bloated and stuff like that. So what sparked the change for me was marriage, my wife, right? Constantly telling me, reminding me, preparing different kinds of food for me. And yes, it was a process. It took time, but she would want me to eat more salads, than greasy food. She wanted me to eat grilled chicken rather than fried chicken. And yes, it was a hard adjustment at first. But I can say today, honestly, that grilled chicken is not bad. Right? <laughs> Some points, I will prefer grilled chicken to fried chicken. That, that's a miracle. That would have not happened five years ago. Right? There are some meals where I actually crave a salad. Okay? That is a supernatural miracle that has happened in my life. Right? 
But see, that's a rehabituation that I have learned through practice and discipline. So as I close, let me have you think about the current course of your life. What habits are just naturally, even deeply ingrained that you do on autopilot? And do those habits lead you to the trivial or the transcendent? If it's more the trivial, then I want to challenge you. What new habits can you form with effort, with intention, with discipline? What new habits can you put in place, even starting tomorrow, that can change the trajectory of your everyday life? Because you are what you crave and you are the sum of your habits. You know, one thing that I've been trying to do because the first thing I do in the morning is I reach for my phone. And to be honest, there's nothing there that's going to satisfy my soul deeply. It's that simple thing. Put my phone in the faraway room opposite in the apartment. And then, you know, my internal self tells me, I need my phone as an alarm clock. Get an alarm clock. You don't need your phone. Do what you need to do to break those old habits. Probably when you wake up, you might be too lazy to walk all the way across your place, your apartment, to go get your phone, that you might have a bit more space and time to first think about God, speak to him, Maybe open up your Bible. Know yourself. Use things. Use your laziness to your advantage. And let's put into place new habits, disciplines that will help you go hard after God until you get to a place where you say, God, your steadfast love is better than life. That's what he would have for you. So pursue him. Let's pray. Can I invite us all to rise? Before we end our time this morning... I want to give you a few quiet moments here to reflect on this passage, this word, and think about where you will take it from here into this coming week, into this coming year. And the reason why here at Renewal Mainline we're starting off with these psalms is because The Psalms is what sets the north point on the compass of your life. Perhaps your compass is in the wrong direction. And so what we're trying to do here, as you heard in the past week, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, today, Psalm 63, is to 
reorient you, to tether you to the right direction so that you can experience and enjoy all that God would have for you this coming year. So what is the current default functional craving of your life right now? What are you chasing after? And how is that dictating your life? Again, I think for a lot of us in this room, we're just at a lukewarm, unmotivated, apathetic place where we're just kind of meandering, coasting along without really any direction. And your life is reflecting that. Lord, can I encourage you right now through repentance to reorient your heart back to Him as your utmost craving? My soul longs for you. My flesh faints for you. More than anything else, oh God. So let's begin there. Let me give you a few moments to, in your heart, seek after him, draw near to him. Let's go to the Lord.